Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest to my podcast, the former member for McKellar, Jason Felinski, who was chair of the Economics Committee in the last parliament. Welcome to my podcast, Jason. Oh, Katie, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful we had a friend and a colleague and someone who is so well-versed in the economy to talk with me basically about the most recent federal labour uh, budget and the response by Peter Dutton to that budget. So thanks for joining me to have this discussion. Um, you know, there's some really, you know, interesting um, kind of lines emerging from Labor. Um, definitely, um, there were some things that Peter Dutton said in his reply that um, he and the coalition were very happy to support, which included increasing bulk billing incentives, particularly to the very young and the very old, expanding the parenting payment. Um, I, I find it amazing that Julia Gillard, actually the day of her misogynist speech, or misogyny speech, not misogynist speech, the speech on misogyny, which is, you know, really well known and well regarded internationally but at the same time that was when uh, the parenting payment was reduced um, it went through that same day through the senate not many people know that which is slightly ironic if you ask me um, and then the other one was uh, additional investment in women's safety which is building on the 3.5 billion dollars a former um, coalition government had already invested so they're all good things in in the labor budget um, what do you think jason do you think um what's your report mark for um jim Trump? Um, you know, I, I, I'd probably give this a, a D. I think this budget fails, and I think primarily it fails because in 12 months' time we are probably going to look back and say we missed enormous opportunities. So um, should we be D then, Jason? Because D, I mean, obviously you haven't had too many Ds. I think Ds are pass. <laughs> uh, well, I, th I think um, no, I think it's a D because it. Um, we have Australia is is a very lucky country. It had enormous opportunities in which to drive the agenda in a positive way and instead he squibbed it and fell back on paying off, um, you know, left-wing interest groups. And I think that's why the budget has gone down so badly with the public at large. But I think um, the other big problem we have in Australia generally is that too much of the commentary class won't tell you what they actually believe because they're playing the inside game of trying to... Um, appeal to, you know, the people they go to dinner parties with, not actually telling the public what the truth is. So when you when you say, you know, we basically have had a good tax take because there's more people who are employed, so that means that the government is, you know, got more higher tax receipts. And, of course, as everyone knows, there's resource restriction with the Ukraine war in particular and gas prices are going through the roof. So, the, you know, the, the, the basically the royalties from resources well, you know, tax take from resources is also something that's um, really helping the bottom line. Is that what you're alluding to? Oh, look, there's a lot of things I'm alluding to. I mean, the fact of the matter is, yes, um, we this budget surplus that we've just received is on the back of 
um, inflationary asset prices, uh, the work that, frankly, Josh Frydenberg did, and finally, what you just mentioned, which is record commodity prices, not just in gas, but in coal, in oil, in agricultural exports. Um, Australia's terms of trade have never been better. And, you know, Katie, when I was um, learning economics, Australia was just considered to be one of those countries that would have a permanent current account deficit. For the last six or seven years, Australia has been enjoying a current account surplus on the back of the boom in resources that was engineered under the Howard and Abbott government, um, and Labor is enjoying that. The point, though, is that, that, that um, as commodity prices begin to normalise and return to their mean, all of that revenue goes away and they have baked in structural spending that will not actually be addressed. Um, and they have done nothing to help Australians become more innovative and more productive, which is the way, which is the only way that you can increase real wages. Um, and because of that, Australians will now be condemned to, to higher wage increases, but they're, they're actually um, having real wage decreases because inflation exceeds their wage increases. Yeah, so the big question, that was something that seemed to come out really across the country, was that, you know, this budget is at risk of being inflationary. Um, I mean, it is interesting that, um, again, it seems to be when, you know, Labor's in, in the hot seat, it's everyone else's fault. Well, well when we, we were in the driver's seat, it was our fault. So they keep saying, well, it's not our fault, it's the global environment, even though at the last election they promised they were going to reduce our power bills and they promised, you know, they were going to be able to deliver um, outcomes. And yet they're sort of saying, well, these things are all beyond our control. So, you know, the question is, is this budget inflationary? Well, this budget is definitely inflationary, but I'm not, I'm not critical of Labor for making those claims. That's Labor's job and it's our job to rebut those claims, um, the, the people who I'm most critical of are the, you know, the expert class in Australia who know that these claims are nonsense and proceed to, instead of actually being honest about policy implications, um, play the politics. They're not going to criticise this budget because they want to be Anthony Albanese's friend. They don't want to be honest with their clients and fellow Australians. And the classic example, um, Katie, which you and I both know about, is, is this idea that renewable energy is kind of free energy. Uh, that's true unless you, until you actually put the network distribution costs in there, in which case it becomes not an expensive form of electricity, but a relatively more expensive form of electricity. And then when you put in the fact that it's not dispatchable and it's not guaranteed energy, suddenly it becomes, you know, reasonably expensive energy. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, trans, transition to more renewable energy. In fact, you and I have said the opposite for quite some time. But what I'm also saying is that we should be honest with the Australian people, as Labor should have been, um, and in admitting that that transition is actually going to increase um, electricity prices. But the real people here who have the most to answer for are all the, the self-appointed experts who go out there and say, oh, no, 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 this is a way to lower... Um, power costs when they know, they know that it isn't. They know that it will end up costing Australians more. Well, if you move on to other sort of cost of living issues, I mean, obviously energy, you know, and the cost of energy is really important to Australians and to businesses. But, um, you know, the other issue is, of course, um, the, the cost of, you know, inflation, whether it's going to be able to be up to kept under control, but also the cost of rent and mortgages. Um, 
and also this issue of housing affordability, which is very much in the front and centre of people's minds at the moment. What's your view on the settings that you know, Labor's well, making? Housing affordability comes down to um, primarily one thing and one thing only, and that is planning controls, which is what is stopping the market from responding to higher prices by increasing supply. So, you know, Economics 101 is that the price mechanism is, you know, the greatest known coordinating mechanism in the world. And it sends a signal to the market. If price goes up, it sends a signal to the market that we need more of something. If price goes down, it sends a signal that we need to produce less of something. The housing prices in Australia and rents, and it's not, you know, it's not rents are one issue. The biggest problem, this is where the Greens are lying, and once again, the expert class is not calling them out, is it's not actually just the cost of rent, um, it's the availability of rental properties. That's the big issue. When you talk to people and when you look at the data, people can't find anywhere to rent, um, and that's a supply issue. The other thing I would say about rental increases is, Katie, um, we all know people who had to reduce um, their rents by 20, 30, 40% during COVID. And so what we're seeing at the moment is not 20 and 30% increases. We're just seeing a return to what rents were in 2019. Um, but what I really fear is that in the years that follow 2023, 24, 25, you will see rents going through the roof simply as people who are desperate to rent can't actually, will have to pay whatever they can. Um, if you want to solve this problem, uh, you need to increase supply. And um, according to NIFIC, we're about 400,000 um, homes short across Australia. Um, that is going to, that is actually projected to increase by 26,000 homes per year between now and 2030. Um, that was before um, the government announced that it was um, going to supercharge immigration to 300,000 people per year. Um, and we know that roughly half of that um, supply shortfall is in Sydney. Um, yeah. The former state Liberal government um, did a terrible job at um, producing more supply. So, you know, or, you know, your average Australian could own the home in which they live. Mm. Well, you know, we seem to have, you know, this sort of big question facing us, you know, with the settings of increasing immigration, which, of course, Australia's always done economically well from, you know, bringing in immigration. Um, you know, it's been a, a very prosperous country as a result. As we know, you know, the, the, the three tenets of increased, increased prosperity, the three Ps, population, productivity um, and participation. So increased population has always been very helpful, particularly when people come over having you know, become educated and they come over willing to work. But with uh, more than 1.5 million people coming in the next five years, as you mentioned, 300,000 a year, that's the highest number in Australia's history and more than the size of Adelaide. I suppose the question is, is this going to put more pressure on housing and more pressure on, you know, on supply? And, and what can what can Labor do when we've got Labor, you know, read right across um, all of the states in mainland Australia and federally? You know, what is it that they can do to make sure that, that some of these solutions come online quicker? I mean, it seems like we're not going to be able to build houses quick enough to house people who are going to come in at speed. Well, once again, it's, it comes down to the state governments producing more housing stock. And you don't do that through social housing or public, you know, let's call it what it is, housing commission homes. You don't do it through that. You do it through allowing the private sector to um, build homes to sell to people who can live in their own homes. Labor's answer to this is to have build-to-rent projects, which is basically um, 
you know, I use this word advisedly, is basically enslaving, making people rent slaves for the rest of their lives. And guess who they want to own these homes? None other than industry super. Um, and guess who runs industry super? The, the union movement. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, we have seen the, the deconstruction of the Australian economy over the last 30 years into some very powerful interests. And uh, one of the reports we did um, for the Economics Committee in the last term was into common ownership and that the real issue in competition policy in Australia at the moment is not one company owning 80% of a market. The problem is that industry super owns 10 to 20% of all the companies in that market and then as significant shareholders demands that management doesn't compete on price or innovation or anything of that nature. And that's the, and that is one of the biggest issues facing Australia in terms of our decline in productivity over the last two decades. Mm. You know, it seems to me that um, Labor are kind of investing in, you know, a group of people, but they're not really investing in productivity. And um, as you mentioned before, you know, that is got to be the way to grow the pie in Australia. It's not just about dividing it up. It's how do you grow the pie? How do you grow the pie? Yeah, yeah. And, and look... Um, one, one of the reasons one of the reasons the budget is a D D minus is not so much because of the budget itself, but because of the changes that they have made to industrial relations. They've taken industrial relations back to the early seventies. Um, they've they've now they're now bringing in or proposing to bring in um, changes that would take us back um, to a time that never existed in Australia. And I just really don't understand how it is in the twenty first century. We're still having arguments about um, whether centralised wage fixing or centralised price fixing of any commodity works. Um, you know, we witnessed it in the Soviet Union. We witnessed it in the Eastern Bloc. We were, you know, even China couldn't get it to work. Um, and uh, Deng Xiaoping had to liberalise their economy for them to become, you know, the second largest economy in, in the world. Um, that is the impact of markets. Markets make people more prosperous give them more opportunities and increase their wages and their living standards. And it's the, you know, Katie, the funny thing is in the history of humanity, um, free markets are the only way that um, human beings have come up with to increase people's um, living standard of living and their opportunities um, and, you know, life expectancy and all those things. Free markets are the only way we've ever done it. And it seems in Australia that we are going to go through the process of having to relearn that um, uh, that that lesson. So we'll just have to wait and see. Well, you know, I couldn't agree with you more with regards to free markets. And, you know, it seems I'm hearing a lot of from the commentary coming out, the things like, oh, well, we're going to expect unemployment to go up as though it was a good thing. And, you know, people are not pushing back on this. It seems bizarre. You know, Labor's approach, which is that's increased wages, makes people more prosperous, that's the way we go, rather than, well, actually, if you make businesses, you know, able to thrive, if they prosper, they can take on more people, they can increase wages, and everyone benefits. You know, we, we as Liberals see, you know, free market and businesses at the heart of prosperity and helping them to get ahead, and then they can help employ people. This sort of whole concept of drive up wages, they don't realise that they'll push, you know, companies into difficulties and then they, they lose out and then in jobs are lost. And it just seems to me that the narrative that's starting to emerge just is completely counterproductive. We're pushing people, we're pushing good people into bad systems. 
and, and they will be trapped in those systems. I mean, Australia's education performance over the last um, 15 years has declined massively. And we have a whole bunch of really good teachers and educators trapped in a failing system controlled by the Teachers' Federation um, and, the, and the left, bluntly, and they don't, and, you know, we, it, it should have been our role-winning government um, to actually decentralise that and give more control to good teachers um, to teach students in a way that was meaningful to them. Um, and, and you're right, when, when you take away innovation, when you take away productivity, when you take away all the things that have meaning in life, that all you're left with is this brutish, um, uh, this brutish negotiation between labour and capital about how how much each gets. Um, and to your analogy, without growing the cake, so it's an argument about a slice. When you're arguing about who gets what slice, the cake starts to shrink. Um, and 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 so a business responds by saying, well, actually, if we have more unemployment, then we'll have more negotiating leverage over labour. And that sort of um, brutal um, environment in which we are forcing young Australians into the labour market is something that I think is awful. And, and to your point, once again, the expert classes failed us. They're not making any of this analysis because, um, frankly, they don't have um, the courage and, and, um, and uh, well, I want to say the values and the principles to tell truth to power. Um, and we've seen that with PwC at the moment. Um, so all of this is is very problematic. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're sort of going to territory to see how inflation continues to rise. It'll be interesting to see where the Reserve Bank, you know, is pushed into a position to keep on raising interest rates. What's your view on what the RBA is likely to do going forward? I, I think that what um, it'll, I think that where Australia will end up is is in a in a form of stagflation. So we'll see the economy, well, the economy is slowing, inflation is moderating, it'll probably moderate around the 4 to 5% range. You'll see wages continuously underperforming inflation, so you'll see real wage decrease. And you're just in, a, you're in an economic downward spiral. Um, you have lower real wages, lower capital investment, um, higher inflation, and, and look, um, it, that just hurts everyone. But inflation hurts people mostly who are, who, um, who are uh, you know, have less economic opportunities and so they, they're typically people who are relying on welfare or fixed incomes and people who are at the um, lower income level, um, uh, lower income wage earners as well. They're, it hurts everyone but it hurts them the most. I think in terms of the, the politics of this, it, the only question is, do we see that by, um, by the next election or is it the one after? But, you know, it's definitely coming. Mm. Yes, I, I think people who are, who are coming off their fixed mortgages and they're expected to be about 800000 this year are watching these interest rates, you know, very carefully and the impact of sort of 10 or 11 interest rate hikes is, I think, is putting the squeeze on middle Australia and certainly... Dutton's reply uh, to the budget was that 10 million Australians earning under $126,000 a year face a tax hike and that 175,000 more Australians will be unemployed. So he's certainly sounding the alarm bells that he's worried about the direction the budget and the economy is heading in. Yeah, and um, he's absolutely right to do that. Um, and that's the job of the opposition to, to point out that 
you know, the budget's not addressing some the budget. The budget um, is is kind of putting band aids over um, symptoms without dealing with some of um, the long term um, challenges we have. And then on top of that is creating new ones, especially in their re-regulation of the labour market. Um, but even what they're doing to the tax system, Katie, they're making the tax system um, less fair, um, more complex, um, more difficult to navigate. They're discouraging people from taking risk, which is, you know, our way of co- in economic, economists call it entrepreneurship. Um, the less entrepreneurship you have, the less competition, the less innovation, the less productivity. And it just becomes this cycle of your best and brightest because in a global economy, um, especially in an English-speaking country, your best and your brightest don't have to hang around in Australia. Um, they can go wherever wherever they need to. Um, and, and I know in your field, in my, um, in my area, I just see it every day. I see people um, popping up in, in North America mostly, um, you know, taking advantage of uh, better opportunities over there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Labor is mobile. Um, and so, you know, the other aspect of the budget, which we didn't really hear a lot about, was, um, you know, uh, the sort of the spend side of it. And of course, um, you know, the NDIS is welcomed and supported by both sides of um, of, of the of the chamber. But you know, there's huge question marks about sustainable funding to the NDIS and you know, is it galloping out of control? And, you know, is it going to become this sort of terrible outcome where it becomes unsustainable for those who are in the system themselves? I mean, it's, it's the cost of it's, you know, absolutely rising at, at extraordinary rates. What's your view on how to have a sustainable footing for the NDIS? Oh, the NDIS is, um, like, there isn't, uh, there isn't anyone I don't know um, who doesn't have a personal story of someone who is misusing that scheme. Um, and we get angry at those people, um, but the fact of the matter is we set up those incentives. Um, we set up incentives that said to people, if you do X and Y and Z, you can get payments. Um, and so that's why we've seen since the budget a lot of anger at the president of the unemployment union um, in that uh, interview he had with Ben Fordham. You've seen some anger about um, the couple that was interviewed by the 7.30 report in terms of um, their payments and, and of course, uh, um, you know, other things like that. And Bill Shorten's answer, uh, which is, oh, we're going to invest, um, you know, $2 billion here to get a $70 billion saving over there. You and I both know that. I, I can't count how many times that's worked because it never has. Um, you know, what is actually required is people to go back to, to basics on the NDIS who it's meant to be helping, um, and the people that it's not meant to be helping uh, need to be uh, weeded off the system. Um, it's the same, Katie. Um, in, in 2022, as Australia went through an acute labour shortage, um, the number of people on the unemployment roll went up. Um, you know, the reason that we need 300,000 immigrants or migrants every year is because we have created such massive barriers between welfare and work so that um, human beings being rational will say, well, why would I, why would I go to work and earn less money um, than I do uh, on receiving welfare? And I think what um, Peter Dutton was, that was the one um, thing that I most liked uh, in his budget reply speech 
is it was an attempt to lower the barriers between um, welfare and work. Um, and, and the psychological impacts of welfare are just, are just so detrimental. We keep, we keep, as liberals, we keep talking about the money. and We've got to stop doing that. It's actually about the people. Um, if you're on welfare, your mental health is more likely to, to deteriorate than if you are socialising with people at work and, you're, and your day has a purpose. Um, you have somewhere to get up to, go to, spend time with, interact with people and then come home. Um, and, that's why, and that's why work is so important. It's not and that's just what about to Peter Dutton's um, budget and reply that he suggested that the threshold um, before you lose your welfare is, is lifted so that people can be at least in a part-time job because if you have a part-time job, yeah. gets you back out into the community, gets you back going to work, gets you socialising, your mental health gets, helps you get back into a full-time job. Best thing we could do for people. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you this morning. Thank you very much, Jason. And I always like to leave my guests by asking them a simple question. Uh, what would you like to see in the next 100 years? Well, oh, Katie, I, you know, um, you, you warned me that you'd be asking me this question. And I think the next 100 years, um, the big question we'll be asking ourselves is what, what, what is it to be human? Um, uh, we, we will undoubtedly produce um, simulations of the world um, that once you're inside them, you won't be able to, to tell the difference between uh, real life and online ga gaming, for example. Um, we will probably create ways to live forever in the next 100 years in one way or another. Um, and then you've got artificial intelligence. And what, you know, I don't think artificial intelligence will ever be able to do fuzzy thinking, which is the big difference. But it will force us to think about what is it that we actually bring to the to the planet. Um, and you know, I, the other interesting thing is that for my entire lifetime, we always talked about overpopulation. And I remember looking at the figures back in 2016 or 17, thinking, oh, by 2030 we'll be talking about underpopulation because you can see large parts of the world were going to be underpopulated. Um, well, that's already started now. Um, and then the other big thing that I think all of us will be worried about over the next 10 to 15 years is, um, is sovereign debt, the amount of money that um, not just Australia, Australia is actually well off, but places like the UK, Western Europe, the United States, China, Japan have borrowed. Um, so, yeah, I think... It's going to be an exciting 100 years. Let's put it that way. That's fantastic. I love your answer. That's fantastic. And um, you might want to listen to my ChatGPT interview with Anton Van Den Hengel last week um, or two weeks ago, talking about the role that AI can make, whether it's going to be friend or foe. And I agree with you about the fuzzy thinking. I think that um, it's going to be incredibly disruptive to the workforce, quite frankly. And um, it's already starting to happen, you know, the release of ChatGPT last November, the way that people are doing work having uh, AI participate in work meetings, summarising the minutes, making notes, uh, coming up with action items, uh, summarising how much everyone's speaking and whether it's been positive or negative. It's, it's just extraordinary, the uh, amount that's coming on online very rapidly. I don't agree with you about we're going to live forever because I've, I've looked into that research. There's some oh, yeah. fundamental yeah. biological issues. I think we could all live to 120 or 130, but I think at the end of the day, utility of <laughs> Run out of run out of action, and uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to get there on that one. But definitely, I think the way that we work, the way that we interact with machines, um, and the way we solve problems is going to change dramatically, and hopefully for the better, as long as we can contain the bad aspects. 
So do you think we'll ever be able to upload consciousness? I don't, personally, but that is a question for another Zoom meeting. I think. Oh, yeah. oh, you got me thinking now. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. All right. Thanks, Katie. See you. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple a Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do.